Hey everybody, this is Senior Pastor Joshua B. Carson saying thank you for tuning into the CT Podcast. We hope that your time here, whether you're driving down the road or whether you're sitting at home with a journal and listening in, we hope that it's effective. Maybe it'll be inspirational, encouraging, maybe it'll be thought-provoking. Regardless of what session you're listening to, we truly pray that this is a benefit to you and to your family. God bless and enjoy the podcast. We're launching a new series tonight entitled, You Can't Outrun God. And we're going to dive into the book of Jonah, chapter by chapter. The content within this book is incredible. And so I'm looking forward to what God has planned over the next four weeks. But I'm asking you as we take a moment to pray. Because while the content is rich, it's very challenging. So as we dive into this word, I'm asking that God would open our hearts. That we would receive it as he intends us to receive it. And that it would call us to action. The type of action that we need in this present day for God to accomplish his will. And so, Lord, we're asking you tonight that you would be with us and help us, God. Lord, we're looking into your word and we're desiring to see not just how it applied thousands of years ago, but how does it apply to our lives today? What do you have in your word, God, that can encourage and inspire, that can challenge, that can strengthen, that can push us to the place you need us to be? So that we can be the church that this city needs. We can be the fathers and the mothers that our children need. We're asking you to help us, God. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. You can be seated. I think if we're going to take a look at the book, we need to do a little bit of getting to know who Jonah is. Jonah lived during... Jeroboam II's reign over the northern kingdom, which puts it somewhere in the time frame of 793 to 753 BC. And while we're uncertain of the exact date of composition, it is widely accepted to be in the neighborhood of 780 BC. He was the son to Amittai, and his hometown was Gathhefer in Galilee. It stood north of Nazareth in the tribal territory of Zebulun. Now, when we start to look at the historicity, we're trying to determine, is this book historically accurate? And as we look back and and start to notice around the 19th century, when critical scholarship was on the rise, the book of Jonah started catching some heat. Writers and teachers that believed that the events recorded in this book were not historical. Instead, they interpret this book of Jonah as an allegory or as a parable. So the allegorical interpretation views the book as a complete allegory in which each feature represents an element in the historical and religious experience of the Israelites. The other camp, the Parabolic interpretation also regards the book as not historical. 
However, its advocates view it as a moral story designed to teach a spiritual lesson. So depending on which camp they're in, it doesn't matter really, because they both believe that the book is fiction. Now there are those that sit where we sit, and that's a historical interpretation where we view the book as literal and historically accurate. Now for those that believe that it's not, they must have a very low view of Scripture. Because for those of us that have a high view of Scripture, we know that when Scripture can testify of itself, when Scripture can prove itself, that's enough. And so when we look at the Scripture, we notice things like the fact that it's really unlikely that the writer would have given us the name of Jonah's father if he was not real. So we have the make-believe name of a make-believe dad of a make-believe son named Jonah. Doesn't seem plausible. Furthermore, the narrator presented Jonah as a real person, not mythical or fictitious figure. If that's not enough, we start to look more and we see that Jesus referred to other prophets like Elijah and Elijah and Isaiah. He even quoted and alluded to many others. But Jonah is the only Old Testament character with whom Jesus Christ compared himself directly. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 38, we read this. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As he was in the belly, Jonah, for three days, and then God delivered him, Jesus was buried and in the tomb for three days and then resurrected on that third day. Jesus compared Jonah's experience in the well to the most significant account and event in history, the resurrection. So right there is enough data and enough information for me to step back and say, if I believe the word to be true, then there's no arguing that Jonah is in fact a historical book. The overriding theme is this, God's sovereign grace towards sinners. It's illustrated in his decision to withhold his judgment from the guilty but repentant Ninevites. When I read that, I think about that. It's illustrated in his decision to withhold his judgment from the guilty but repentant Ninevites. I don't know about you, but I am thankful that God answers repentance by giving us another chance. That God answers our repentance by giving us another opportunity to do what's right. That even though we find ourselves guilty, if we repent, God meets us in that repentance. It's because of this that Dr. Constable says that the book of Jonah is one of the most relevant books for our present time. Now, when we're studying this book, 
God's dealings with Jonah are equally as important as his dealings with the Ninevites from the standpoint of the book's revelation. These dealings reveal God's attitude and activity toward the nations and toward his own people for the nation's sake. We have here a revelation of Yahweh and a revelation of the responsibility of Yahweh's representatives. That's what I meant when I said that this rich text is going to also be something that challenges us. Because we're not just going to learn more about who our God is. We're going to learn more about what God expects us to be. And so I feel like we know Jonah. So let's dive in and take a look. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And when he went down to Joppa, he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now we're going to have to look ahead a little bit. We don't want to spoil everything. I think for the most part, we all know the story of Jonah. It's four chapters. If you didn't know it, when you came into this meeting, you can go home and you can figure everything out, at least from a bird's eye view. We're going to dive into that, but I got to reveal something to you from chapter three and chapter four so that we start off at the right place. God's word to Nineveh, we find in chapter three, is not a word of repentance. God's word for Nineveh is not a word of hope, not a word of of the fact that they could find forgiveness and make things right. God's word for Nineveh delivered by Jonah was that in 40 days, you will be destroyed. We also read from that point that they repent of their sins. The king calls a fast. God does what he always does when somebody repents. He grants him forgiveness and he lifted his judgment off of them. And then we read in chapter four, verse two, that Jonah prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore, I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of evil. So we're getting a little bit clearer of a picture into the conversation that was taking place in chapter one in those first few verses. Jonah's throwing a fit because Jonah's telling God, this is what I told you. Could you imagine talking to God like that? He's like, I told you this. I told you that if I go deliver this message unto them, you're not gonna destroy them. You're going to repent of it. They're going to turn away from it. And you're going to pull your judgment off of them. This is why I ran. So now we know why Jonah took off and why he didn't do what God called him to do. So you have an understanding of that conversation. And we get to the point here where we're looking at the fact that God told him to go. 
And yeah, he went. You see on the map there behind me, he went, but he went the opposite direction. He didn't go where God told him to go. There is like 2,500 miles from where Jonah was to where he was heading away, directly away from what God asked him to do. And we know that he was doing that. Why? Because he knew that God's judgment wasn't going to come to pass. But can you imagine that, that, that God is asking you to do something? He's asking you to deliver a word to somebody. And you know that deep down in your heart that when you tell them the, the judgment of the Lord is upon them, that they're going to repent and that God's going to forgive them. And that's what drives you mad. He was angry because they were going to be forgiven and not destroyed. Mind you, Nineveh was a city. There was women there, children there. And Jonah was not happy with the fact that God was not going to destroy them. Jonah, you had one job. You ever said that to your friend before? You know, you've said it. Most of the time when we say it, that person had like 19 jobs, but we focus in on the one thing they didn't do right. And we're like, you had one job and you blew it. All you had to do was go and give the message. Well, that word go, that commission to go is not unfamiliar to us in present day. Wasn't unfamiliar to those in Matthew 28 when Jesus gave the great commission and he said, go, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. We're familiar with that commission. Commission's another word for commandment. Yeah, God commanded him to go, but God commissioned Jonah to go. Like God commissions us today to go. So why? Why did Jonah run? We know why he ran. He didn't want them to be forgiven. Let's look at this, though, through the eyes of Jonah, because I don't want to downplay what he would have been going through in his mind. Nineveh was at this time a very significant city of the great Assyrian Empire. Nineveh was not yet the capital of Assyria, nor was Assyria yet a world power that threatened Israel. But it was not a matter of if they would overtake Israel, but a matter of when. Because Jonah was completely aware of the prophecy of Isaiah that was prophesying that the Assyrians would in fact invade and overthrow God's people. So you got to capture that. Jonah knew that if these cats live, they're coming back for blood. No question about it. It's going to happen. And he's wrestling with that when God is giving him the commission to go. He's wrestling with the fact that if I go and God forgives them, they could destroy, they will destroy 
us at some time in the future. Not a matter of if, but a matter of when. Not to mention, these guys were barbaric. They were known when they go to battle. It was normative for them to kill men, women, and children in battle. As they grew in power, they became even more. I can't even describe. When I was in young adults, I taught about this. I had no problem describing it in great detail. It felt okay there in a small classroom. We won't go into great detail, but I'll tell you this. As they grew in power and they started to win their battles, the Assyrians would erect these pillars of wood and they would take the heads of the people that they conquered. Not just men, all the heads of the people that they would conquer. And they would jam them on these posts and slide them down so that you would have these tall towers displaying all the heads so they would cast great fear into anyone that's seen it. Now, I know what you're wondering. If that's not graphic, what was you saying in young adults? What happens in young adults stays in young adults. So Jonah is aware of all of this. To be fair to him, because just about three minutes ago, we were all judging him. All thinking about what a loser, what a failure. How could you do that, Jonah? How could you not be willing to see grace extended to someone else? That same grace that's been extended to you. So here's two popular positions that I want to put before you tonight of why. Why was it such a big deal that they were going to be forgiven? The first one is he didn't want to be perceived as a false prophet. He was concerned about what people would think. Consider this. If he prophesied a message and it didn't come to pass, what would people say? I mean, after all, he's a prophet of God. That's his job. If he prophesies and the message doesn't come to pass, in fact, the exact opposite comes, nothing happens to the city of Nineveh. How does Jonah look in the eyes of people? He would be perceived as a false prophet. Jonah was concerned maybe about the prestige of the office. If I'm not a prophet, what am I? You see, the person that called him to go, though, was the only person he should be concerned with what they think. It shouldn't be anyone else's opinion that matters to Jonah. It should be the opinion of God himself. We can't let what people think dictate our obedience to the Lord. It can't be how we live for God. Our obedience cannot be predicated on the results. That's not up to us. Remember what scripture talks about in every area we see this, but you even got the part where some plant, some water. But who gives the increase? It's always God. Now, who plants and who water changes all the time? It's us as individuals. One day I'm watering, one day Brother Trano's watering, one day somebody's planting, one day I'm planting. But it's always God that gives the increase. 
We can't allow ourselves to get caught up in the results side of the equation. We don't belong there. We don't get to dictate things. I've heard story after story of someone being prompted by God to go lay hands on somebody and pray for them. And they needed a miracle. And just like that, their miracle took place. But I've heard just as many stories of where someone is filled prompted by God to go and lay hands on somebody and pray for them that God would perform a miracle and the miracle didn't happen. You were never in charge of the miracle. The only thing God prompted you to do was pray for that person and believe that God could do it. It's completely in his purview and up to him if he decides to perform. Now, here's the deal. It only bothers us when we make it about us. And if it's about us, we're starting off with false footing already. We're not going to be successful in the kingdom of God if when we go out to do the work of God, it's not about him. It's about us. Here's the second one. He didn't want the Lord to withhold judgment because he felt like, you ready for this? They didn't deserve it. Jonah knew all there was to know about the Assyrians. And those that lived in Nineveh, he knew how wicked they were. Their reputation preceded them. He knew the type of people they were. And in Jonah's mind, he felt like they don't deserve forgiveness. Jonah said, I would rather God destroy them, men, women, and children, then them repent and experience the forgiveness of God. Let me translate that for you. Jonah said, I don't want what God afforded me to be afforded to someone like them. Now remember, the Assyrians were brutal. And he knew that they were going to come after Israel at some point. But God's the one that told him to go. So if God's the one that told him to go, he's also the one that spoke through Isaiah when the prophecy came about them overtaking Israel. So once again, this is all things that God needs to work out. But Jonah started to decide for himself who deserves God's grace and who doesn't is where he's messing up. Here's how I want you to think about it. Because once again, I know it's easy to put Jonah on the floor, kick him around. What a bad dude he is. Can you think of people or movements in today's day and age where they're not out to slaughter us, they're not out to, to kill us, but the actions that they take are destroying things that are important to God's fundamental lifestyle? Can you think of some of those? that are absolutely out to destroy the family. 
And we know that when you destroy the family, you start to pick off the church because the church is strong because of strong families. So if we can sell this lie that men can be women, that women can be men, if we can push that through society, if we can put it on enough commercials, if we can put it in enough movies, if we can get it into our schools and people can start to believe that the family's not really what God said it was, but it's what we want it to be. And it's not about God's command and God's design. It's about how we feel and about what we want, right? Then they're eroding what God is building. And then we can find ourselves in Jonah's shoes thinking, man, everything that's happening in that agenda is to destroy what God has built. And we can find ourselves thinking, you know, maybe we don't want them here. Maybe, maybe we're better off without them. And we don't want to say it like this, at least not out loud. Maybe, just maybe, their kind doesn't belong here. You can feel the weight of it when you even pronounce words like that. The darkness behind it. To think that we would be okay to be in a position to decide who God extends his mercy and grace toward. Everybody. Everybody. Who do you want us to go to, Lord? Everybody. Who do you want us to tell about your forgiveness? Everybody. 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 Drug addict. I got a friend that was teaching Bible studies. Talking about an industry that's destroying the family. I got a friend that was teaching Bible studies, a pastor, to a guy who owned an adult bookstore. And he was meeting in his house teaching the Bible studies, and, and there was a large group that started to build around it. None of them, church folks, just this pastor. And these people that are living in these gross lifestyles and who are making money off of something that is destroying families. Man, you're taking time out of a night in the week when you don't have that many nights in the week to spare. And you're teaching Bible studies to a, a school teacher? No, not a school teacher. A college student? No, not a college student. You know, somebody that breaks in cars? You know, maybe they steal a few things here or there? No. Somebody that pushes pornography into the hands of adults and children. Who do we go to, God? Everybody. Who do we go to? Every, well, hey, hey, what about them getting in? Isn't there stories about, you know, wolves and sheep clothing? Yes, there is. Wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. We've got to use wisdom. But our wisdom 
We can never hide behind saying I'm using wisdom if that means we're not actively willing to share the message of Jesus Christ and his redemptive power for them. We've got to be willing to share that. We can't hide behind anything that says we won't share that message. It's got to go forth. Jonah was in one of these two camps, I do believe. I'm going to move on here. Reading in verse four. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that that ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. I looked into like, what were they thinking to start grabbing things and casting it overboard into the sea? And I learned that a ship, if it's light of load, is actually worse off in a storm than one that's weighted down. And then I started looking at the language and I realized that it was not to make the ship lighter. It was to lighten it for them. They were trying to get around on the the deck of the boat, doing everything that they could, pulling the sails, moving things around to try to survive this storm. And in doing so, they were frantically tossing things out of their way, off of the boat, just making room for them to try to get around and fix the situation. Here's what I want you to think about and consider. We need to be careful of what we toss overboard in the chaos of the storm. What's the first thing to go when our life starts spinning out of control? Oftentimes it's church. Things are going wrong and all of a sudden I don't have time to go to church or or I don't want to see people and them ask me how I'm doing and I have to explain all of the excuses begin to flood. We're in the middle of the storm and we're grabbing a hold of things and tossing it overboard and before we know it, church is gone. Here's what I want us to consider. What really happens when we come to church anyways? Here's what happens. We come into the presence of God together to engage him. We have people that lead us, like Brother Williams tonight, into communal and individual worship. Communal because we're all together, but individual because he is a personal God and no one else can worship him for me. My worship to him is personal. We hear the word of God preached and we know that the seed of the word being sown into the hearts of man is powerful. We know God's word does not return void. He speaks through his word in a very personal way to each of us individually. This is why several people can leave the same service with entirely unique experiences in how God spoke to them directly. He is a personal God. We're not just hearing the word come across, 
but we're hearing the word come across and God knows right where we're at. And he's able to speak to us on that personal level. The number of times I've left the service and heard someone say, man, you know, when Pastor Carson said that, it hit me right here and here's what it meant. I know God gave that to me. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. Thank God for that. And then I hear someone else say, man, you know, when Pastor Carson and they, they quote the same area that he was preaching about. And they're like, when he said that, it hit me in this particular place. And I just know that God had me here for that word tonight. How can that be true that the same words coming out of our pastor's mouth out to the congregation could impact people in multiple ways? It's because he's very personal. Man, he knows where we're at. So when we're at church, these are the things that we're experiencing. When we start to struggle in life, you don't want to chuck those things out. You want to give God a chance to speak to you. We have altar calls at church services. It's a call to action, a, a time to respond to God's word. We got to worship him. We got to hear his word go forth. God began to convict us and shape us in our hearts. And then he gives us a chance to respond to it. Like, I feel your conviction, God. And God's like, I know you feel it. I'm, I'm driving it into your heart, but I need you to do more. I need you to respond to what you're feeling. In the chaos of the storm, it can seem like you don't need that box. You doesn't, it's not necessary, and you toss it overboard. And before you realize it, you're missing those times of worship. You're missing those times where God will speak from the pulpit and grip your heart. You're missing those moments at the altar that you used to have when you could lay out broken before God and He could begin to mend your heart and pick up the pieces like clay in his hands and just start to shape exactly the way you need him to. Something else that often gets tossed out if we're not careful is spiritual leadership or counsel. I'll tell you the truth that breaks my heart when I sit down with somebody and, and their life is in ruins and and it happened so fast and they made decisions, major life decisions without consulting with any spiritual counsel at all. And, and they're here and they're broken and they're hurt. But that doesn't mean that we don't want to help. Don't allow the enemy to convince you that if you end up in a bad place because of bad decisions without spiritual counsel, that you can't stop what you're doing right now. And reach out to your leadership. Reach out to those who can help you and guide you. You don't have to do it alone. God doesn't intend for you to do it by yourself. And know you're not weak. When you turn to your spiritual guidance and you ask them for help and you say, here's what I'm thinking. I need you to speak into my life. And let me add this. It's altogether different when you sit down in front of somebody that you're is your spiritual leader and you're telling them what you're going to do versus asking them for their guidance about what you're thinking about doing. God wants to help you. And he uses people around you. I couldn't go through enough. There's not enough time to go through the names of people 
Brother Sleva. I'll start there and end there. The Alpha and the Omega. I just, I just know that I make enough bad decisions after spiritual counsel to think if I made them without it, where my life would be. It's okay to lean on your leaders for help. Prayer. Oh, man. I should have led with this because this is the first thing that they're chucking off the boat. Prayer. My world is in such shambles that I wouldn't know where to start. Just start with telling him that. Nothing fancy, nothing polished. Just God, I don't even know where to begin. I've messed up. And you know what? I've prayed this prayer. God, I've messed up again. I've messed up again. How did I let that happen again? It's so funny. Don't act like you guys have never had that prayer. Everybody's staring at me like, yeah, we know you did. God wants to help. Here's one. I'm so busy trying to survive the storm, I don't have time to pray. I asked them to share a picture, an image up here on the screen if they would. This is as ridiculous as what I just read to you. Go ahead, let it settle in for a minute. You have a salesman with the machine gun trying to talk to the king about this revolutionary weapon. And the king has his sword and he says, I don't have time to see a salesman. I've got a battle to fight. And we say, life is spinning out of control. I don't have time to pray. God has handed you a machine gun to fight a a war where those guys have swords and spears. You don't have time not to pray. You can't afford not to pray. God desires to hear from us. We're in the middle of the storm. He wants to help us. You're looking at the clock. There's four minutes left. There's a lot more verses than what we've already covered. The second half goes much faster. The shipmaster came to him in verse six and said unto him, what meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. Here's what's mind blowing to me. Just a thought for you. How was Jonah in direct disobedience to God and yet felt enough peace that he could sleep through a storm. God forbid that we have peace to sleep when we find ourselves in direct disobedience to the Lord. You know what? Even worse than that, God sent the storm to get Jonah's attention. And he was so far gone into his way that he is sleeping peacefully in the middle of that storm. Verse seven, and they said, everyone to his fellow, come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. 
So they cast lots and they fell upon Jonah. The men were aware that this storm was greater than what would happen normally. They're casting lots. Who has caused this to happen? Then said they unto him, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thy occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And what and of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. I got to tell you, he's a little bit schizopolar. Like you fear God or you don't fear God. Because someone that fears God normally obeys God. You're running the opposite direction and not just a little run. 2,500 miles on ship from where God wants you to be. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then said they unto him, what shall we do unto thee? That the sea may be calm unto us. For the sea wrought and was tempestuous, tempestuous. And he said unto them, here, look at this. This is crazy. His answer on what they should do is throw me out of the boat. What do we do? You've brought this to us. You've caused the problem. Here's Jonah conflicted internally about what should happen in Nineveh. He's fleeing from what God has called him to do. Hoping maybe that God will pick someone else to deal with it. Conflicted enough to run from God, but had enough heart to say to them, I don't want you to perish for my bad choices. Cast me into the sea and it'll be calm. Now these, verse 13, these are the kind of guys I want around me. They're like, no, we can't do that. And they kept rowing and rowing and rowing. They didn't want to throw Jonah overboard because it was certain death for him to be cast into the sea in the middle of this storm. And they didn't want that on their head. So they did everything that they could to protect the man of God, even though all of the problems were caused because of his disobedience to the Lord. Wherefore, they cried unto the Lord, and said, we beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee. Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, has done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Going into verse 17, I want you to stand with me. I think this is my favorite verse of this chapter. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I used to read this and, and I would come to myself and say, that's the judgment of God. 
Jonah got what he deserved, swallowed by a fish. But the judgment of God and Jonah getting what he deserved would allow him to die in that sea. What we read in verse 17 is not the judgment of God, but the extended mercy and grace of God toward Jonah. We start out this chapter with Jonah getting a commandment from God. He disobeys God. He runs the opposite direction. He has no desire to do what God had called him to do. And then when he's cast overboard into the sea, what does God do? You would think he just lets him go. Jonah takes his last breath. He's done for. He's dead. He's useless, God. He ignored you. He disobeyed you. He was unwilling to go to that city and to preach to them. He refused to do what you asked him to do, God. Strike him. You know, sometimes we get that attitude. We see someone else who's just consistently not doing what God wants them to do. And we're like, that person's more of a problem than they are a help. And if we're not careful, we'll think in our minds, God, just take them out. Drop the hammer for crying out loud. Solve this situation. You see the havoc they cause. You see the division they cause. And you think, man, God, isn't this enough? And it's in that moment that God says, I'm going to speak to a fish. I want you to know how important it is for me to extend grace and mercy to everyone, including my people who have stumbled, including my people who have not obeyed, including my people who have crossed the line, including my people who have messed up. I'm not just going to send a lifeboat to pick him up. I'm going to speak to a fish and it's going to swallow him. What a display of his mercy and his grace. Let me tell you this as I'm closing. We have all been in the belly of the well. Not a literal well, but that place where God's mercy and grace sustained us just long enough so that we had time to repent, so that we had time to get it right. He could have snuffed us out. That could have been our last bad choice, but God held us in the belly of the well. How you know we've been in the belly of the well? Go on, get you a whiff. It left its mark on you. Thank God for his mercy and for his grace. Anyone can walk into this church and experience the mercy and the grace of God extended from this congregation because we serve a God of mercy and grace. His mercy and his grace doesn't change. We could decide, no, we're not extending mercy and grace, but that doesn't change him. It'll change our relationship with him, but it won't change him. Lord, I thank you so much for meeting with us tonight. 
I pray, God, that you would continue to allow this word to settle in our hearts and in our minds. God, as we're going forward in this series, I pray that you would minister to our church, that you would help us, God, to have a great understanding, maybe an awakening of your great love and your great mercy and your willingness to save all that are willing and wanting to be saved. God, help us. Help us to minister in our city. Help us to minister at our jobs. Help us to minister in our families. God, we want to be used of you. We want to do it right. Help us, God. We can't do it by ourselves. Help us to do it right. God, humbly, humbly we say to you, we cannot do it on our own. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here.